Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. We meet every Saturday, 9 a.m. Central Time. If you're watching us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, X, or Instagram, welcome to the show. Hope I didn't forget any of them. Uh, YouTubers, keep that subscription going. Hit that subscribe button. If this is your first time visiting with us, be sure to check out our website at euronurse.com, the best place to go to see all of our uh, things that we offer for you, all sorts of great things, especially the best place to watch our past episodes, 76 episodes to watch, folks. Hey, want to listen to us in your car? No problem. Go to our Euronurse Plus area where you can get onto our audio podcast, listen on any of your favorite things such as Apple, Amazon, Google, or Spotify. They all work. And if you're not getting our newsletter, be sure to go ahead and register for that. Every Monday, newsletter comes out reminding you about what great shows are coming up. If you're watching us live and you want to put a comment in the comment box or ask a question, that's your spot. This week, we've got Diane Newman joining us, and she's going to be talking about the Hollister Continence Care Registry. We're really looking forward to more information about that. And with that, I'm going to bring in our experts right now. Experts, welcome to the show. How's everybody doing today? Good morning. Good morning. Hi, right, I'm going to kick off the introductions. My name is Vic Sinise. I'm the host and producer of the show. Been involved in urology for the past 40 years. And as I always say, this is a great way to pay it back to everyone. So glad to be a part of the show. Let's bring in our other experts for their introductions. Lori, you're up. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lori Atkinson. I'm a certified urology registered nurse, and I'm currently working at a urology practice in Geneva and Winfield, Illinois. Glad to be very, here. Very good. Welcome. Lace, you've had a nice time off for a few uh, holidays. Yeah. Have I did. You. I did. I did. I, nice to be back. Um, so I'm Lace Heideman. I'm a registered nurse who um, I have worked in urology for over 10 years now and glad to be here and participate with you guys uh, on these wonderful discussions as well. Yeah. Great Good to be back. John, welcome to the show. Good morning, everyone. My name is John Lynn. I'm a urologist in Gilbert, Arizona in private practice. And like Vic, what I'm doing is to share what little I know regarding the clinical and business aspects of urology as a way to pay it forward because urology has been extremely good to me. And uh, to that end, I created a Facebook group called the Thriving Urology Practice Facebook group where we crowdsource practice management solutions for everyone's benefit, and it's all for free. And when they tell me that it's free, I say I'll take three. Back to you. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is funny how, how that's a great price tag to have something free. <laughs> all right. And our guest speaker for this, for today, Diane Newman, why don't you give – you probably don't need an introduction. Who doesn't know yeah. Diane? <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> that's right. Thanks so, thanks so much, Vic, and I really appreciate you having me on. I'm a nurse practitioner. I've been practicing in urology for over 35 years. I do mostly lower urinary tract dysfunction, and I do a lot of management with catheters. I'm also adjunct professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania, and I've actually taken on a new role. You may have seen me on your today where I have a catheter center. So I'm really um, very happy to be here, and I'm very thankful to your nurse, especially Vic, I've known for many, many years. Yeah. Um, so I want to present this registry because, you know, um, in urology, we do a lot with catheters, right? We put catheters in the bladder, we put stents in, and the we don't know what people are doing. So I want to share with you some of the statistics around the use of catheterization and a registry, a five-year registry that Hollister, who's in uh, Libertyville, 
Illinois is actually sponsoring. So I think you'll be really excited to learn about it. All right, great. Let's bring up your slides. Go ahead. So this is called the Continence Care Registry, the CONCARE-RE, and it's really to look at a, um, a patient, a man or woman's experience over time when they're performing what we call intermittent catheterization. So I'm gonna start with a definition of neurogenic lower urinary tract dysfunction because that's usually the condition men and women will have when they have to catheterize themselves. So this is really dysfunction of the lower urinary tract, which would be the bladder, the urethra, which is the tube that carries the urine from the bladder, and secondary to some kind of damage or disease uh, in your nervous system. So that would be your brain, your spinal cord, or the peripheral nerves, we call them. And that results in the fact that you cannot normally pee. You cannot void or we call urination on your own, that you need a catheter to empty your bladder. You know, in urology, we do see individuals that um, we don't really know why they have to catheterize. And we always say that's etiology or cause unknown. But a lot of individuals have neurogenic disease that's causing their bladder not to function properly. And on this slide, it's a busy slide, but it just shows you all the conditions that can cause neurogenic bladder dysfunction. Stroke is one, uh, Parkinson's disease, spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, um, and even diabetics. If you have diabetes over time, you have fine nerves that assist the bladder in functioning normally, allowing you to pee normally. And over time, depending on the control of your diabetes or how long you've had it, that, you know, those nerves are not functioning as well. And you may not be able to empty your bladder. You may retain that bladder, that urine in that bladder. So, you know, what the concern is, of course, is if you don't get that urine out of your bladder, you can cause problems. So treatment goals are you want to protect the upper tracts. Now, I talked to you about the lower urinary tract, which is the bladder, the urethra, and men is the prostate. But the upper tracts are the kidneys. You have two kidneys and you have very thin tubes that go from the kidneys down to your bladder that carries the urine from the kidneys. So that's the upper tracts. If you don't get that urine out of your bladder, it can reflux, which means it can go back up into the kidneys causing problems. Um, you, and that can you lead to urinary tract in, um, infection. So you really, one of the treatment goals is to prevent that. Also individuals can have urinary incontinence, which is what a lot of people call bladder leaks where you leak urine when you don't want to. And if you have a bladder full of urine, it can overflow causing incontinence and it really can negatively impact your quality of life. So we wanna make sure that that individual who cannot empty their bladder normally really can go about their daily lives as normal. I just wanna share with you some statistics and this is out of the Miami project. So you can go online and find these. And these are statistics from 2023. Um, 18,000 new spinal cord injuries each year in the U.S. None of you, the viewers here realize, but we have the highest spinal cord population in the world, mostly because of uh, the wars we had in the Middle East, going on now, where we have a lot of injuries to that bladder, to the spinal cord. Um, the leading cause is still motor vehicle accidents, falls, especially in older adults is a problem, acts of violence, and then sport injuries we now have over 300,000 individuals who have a spinal cord injury. Now, when we say spinal cord, that means that you have some kind of trauma or injury um, that can go from the brain down to, you know, the base of your spinal cord, because that's where all your nerves are. These are mostly men. Um, and they're fairly young in their 40s. Um, and they end up having stays in hospitals and rehab centers. So, you know, this is a growing population. You know, way, way in the past, and I think, Vic, I did a 
program way back on neurogenic bladder dysfunction, I gave some statistics on the fact that prior to the war, World War One, we used to use indwelling Foley catheters, and there was a high death rate mortality with individuals who had, keep that catheter in long term, um, with a balloon, you know, retains in the bladder, and we developed intermittent catheterization. And because of that advancement and the increase in technology with new catheters, people are living longer and longer and longer if they have some kind of bladder dysfunction because they catheterize themselves. So, you know, where we stand is that people are out there cathing themselves. If you go to www.today.com, you'll see I have some catheter videos showing you how to, you know, what a catheter is, how to put it in that. And there's lots of people that are doing that. Um, patient satisfaction is important but it's really poorly understood what people are doing. You know, in urology, and I think everybody on this call will know that we see them, we teach them how to cat themselves. They go home, they may come back for the first six months every year, but they, we don't, well, they're lost to follow up and they can go on for years and years and years cathing themselves. And they may not have that connection with urology. So we don't understand what they're doing. Um, and even in the literature around the world, our understanding of long-term intermittent self-catheter users is very inadequate. We just don't know. So the objective of this registry, and it's a five-year registry, was to collect longitudinal data on what are people doing with cathing themselves. We want to know how satisfied they are. What is their quality of life? Do they find that when they travel, where do they throw the catheter away? You know, men talk about this all the time. We don't have in our stalls, which is where I cath myself, we don't have those little containers like women do because they put their menstrual pads in it. We don't have those. So I have to come out of the stall with my catheter. I don't want to be embarrassed. So what is it like traveling with a catheter? Um, I know some of you are in very cold climates. Here in Philadelphia, we actually have snow. Does the hydrophilic coated catheter, that fluid freeze if you keep the catheter in your car? I want to tell you it does. So what is going on with you as far as using the catheter? And what we're doing is that we are doing this survey in multiple um, countries, so it is international. So really, what is the real world evidence as far as catheterization? How do you catheterize yourself? And as I said, as we are doing it, we're now in the U United States, we're collecting data, Canada, United Kingdom, we're gonna go to France and Italy with our survey. We're doing multiple surveys, so if you come on, and um, you know, register if you're cathing yourself. I really think you, you should be part of our survey. Uh, you do get a little bit of a stipend um, if you if you can if you um, um, answer all the surveys. We're doing a couple surveys. There's a couple surveys out there that have been validated on what is the experience of someone who catheterizes themselves. And there's some standards, what we call quality of life survey surveys, to find out how this is affecting your overall health in that. Um, we are doing this, we track you over five years, so we want to know what is going on with you over that period of time. Um, so we're really doing a lot of data, you know, mining as far as what's going on with individuals. Um, it is real-world evidence, um, and real-world evidence is really complementing other controlled clinical trials. I actually do quite a bit of research. I have NIH funding where we do randomized control trial. This is not randomized. This is a longitudinal perspective study. We're looking at the natural history, the course of your disease. Why are you catheterizing? What happens to you? How many urinary tract infections you're getting? Um, and how effective maybe is the products you're using? 
even though this is funded by Hollister, we don't care what product you're using. We want to learn what you're using. And we have individuals who are using all the different types of catheters. That's what's so exciting about this is we have lots of catheters to choose from. So if you're someone who's catheterizing yourself, you can choose what's best for you. And they come with different types of coding, um, more um, what we call closed systems where you can travel with it. You can put the catheter in your pocket, in your purse. So we're trying to find out what are you actually doing. So this is really what um, really the summary of the registry is. We don't care whatever reason why you're catheterizing. We are looking at neurogenic. And like you see, we're really expanding. We're going to also go into Germany. And as I said, this is five years. So this is a real big commitment from Holster. I really want to give them credit. This is a big financial, but a big undertaking for a company. And I, you know, I want to commend the company because um, they, this is only going to help us clinicians learn what we need to do in our practice to teach patients who are catheterizing themselves. Our target enrollment, by the way, I think it's going to be five to 600. Um, and we're getting there slowly, but we are. This is registered. And by that, I mean, it's an IRB, which means it's been approved um, by a research group that approves studies in individuals. We do not take your name. We do not identify who you are. You are anonymous to us if you come on the registry. It's all done online, so you could do it on your phone. You can do the surveys on your phone, which I know a lot of people like. Um, but basically, it's very what we call de-identifiable. We don't know who you are. Um, and these are the different kinds of things that we are doing. This is a great questionnaire. It's called the Intermittent Self-Catheterization Questionnaire. And it evaluates you know, quality of life and what you're doing with your catheterization. How easy is it to use? Is it discreet? The psychological well-being and how convenient is it? Um, so, you know, the higher the score, the less burden it is uh, that you have with performing catheterization. Um, we're also doing the European quality of life. Um, it's a five-level dimension that as it, this is a really great questionnaire because it's translated in 130 languages, which is going to help us when we go into, say, Italy, France, and Germany. And it looks at mobility, self-care. Um, because of, you know, do you have pain and discomfort, anxiety, depression? Um, and it really looks at your health overall. So it's a really nice validated questionnaire that we also ask. And we're also doing the RAND Modified and Medical Outcomes Social Support Survey. This is really a great survey looking at certain areas as far as social support. Who's helping you? Do you have individuals out, out there that are supportive of what you're doing? Um, and this is a really important survey that's been validated here in the U.S., as far as what is your support in the community. So as you can see, it's a lot of questions here. And sometimes that's a negative and a positive for us because we want that data to know what's going on. And what I want to do is share with you some of the outcomes of this. We started in 2021. Um, we did a pilot study um, to find out whether this was workable and if patients understood the surveys. And again, it's men and women. Um, and we're now, we don't know how long we're going to go. The journey's going to go on. I will tell you that I learned that Hollister did such a survey with their ostomy uh, customers and with ostomy patients around the world. It took them several years to get it, but they did get there. Um, as you see, we uh, opened in the U.S. in 2022, which was actually during COVID. Canada enrollment was also that year. In 2023, we opened in the United Kingdom, and that's growing steadily, and um, we continue to do outreach. How do we get individuals? Um, it's through a lot of different mechanisms. We've gone to meetings, some of the um, uh, patient advocacy groups like the United Spinal Cord meeting to try to get individuals into the survey. We've gone out to nurses. So anybody 
who is on this call, please email me. Go online, you can find me, um, and I will send you uh, the, the uh, flyer that you can give out to patients because we're really trying to build up um, our registry. We want more and more people. We know they're out there. How do we reach them? And I really want to thank your nurse and Vic for allowing me to present this because this is another avenue as far as you know, getting individuals into this registry. This is what we currently have, 157, um, as far as we've had a very slight um, attrition. This is really important. Once, you, once someone comes in this registry, they stay in it. We've only had six drop out. So we're at 151, and you can see the breakdown here between the US, Canada, and UK, and that really, really matches as we started enrollment. We are getting there, um, and we continue to grow. But remember, we want a 500 to 600 group of individuals in this registry, so we have a way to go. Now, where are they located? You can see mostly in the U.S. at this point in time. Mostly men. And that goes along with the statistics I showed you in spinal cord. 65% are male currently. Average age, 51.28 years. I was a little surprised by that. I thought I'd be a little bit younger, but you can see the span from 20 to 86 years. Um, so we really do have a nice age span there uh, as far as, um, and that makes sense. Under the age of 20, maybe 18, we'll get down to that. But uh, as far as pediatric, we want the individual person who's performing the catheterization to complete this survey. When we look at conditions currently that we have in that subgroup, um, we have 133 that have lower urinary tract dysfunction. And look at that, we have 90% are neurogenic, which is why I highlighted that at the beginning of this talk. Related spinal cord injury, about 53%. Now, what's interesting is look how long they've had their spinal cord injury. Average, 10.54 years. So like I said, people are living well, they're living longer, managing their bladder with a catheter. Range is one to 52 years as far as how long they've had their spinal cord injury. So um, this is a population that's gonna be around for a long time. We will look at, with one of our surveys, the level of um, mobility, dexterity in that spinal cord injury population. And on the left there, you can see the level of the spinal cord injury. 49% uh, is T1 to T12. So that's thoracic 1 to thoracic 12. But 27% are cervical. And I'm sure you on this um, call that are clinicians or maybe you have a spinal cord injury, you know that that's a pretty debilitating injury when it's in cervical area. And we're looking at things such as mobility. Are they feel fully mobile, which is surprising. Really, that's the highest group. They can walk on their own down to using a wheelchair, which is the next highest. Dexterity, they're able to grasp the objects, which tells me this is a fairly functional group so far that we have in our registry, um, with only 18 saying they have um, limited ability to grasp objects. That's important, because remember, you have to grasp a catheter. Uh, transferring to the toilet and catheterization uh, precisions, we're kind of interested in that. Um, can And that's kind of a marker, are you able to transfer the toilet? Because a lot of individuals who catheterize actually catheterize on the toilet or catheterize standing before the toilet. And you can see as far as that, you know, the bulk of these individuals can transfer without any assistance from others. So it's a fairly good mobile group that we currently have. But on the right there, lying down in bed, do they stand in front of the toilet? You can see the different positions they're using as far as for catheterizing. And that's important to us. Hey, as a clinician, that's important because when I teach someone, they don't, you know, I may teach a woman on an exam table. I don't know anybody who has an exam table at home. 
that may be a great table to use for catheterization for teaching, but what do they do at home? So we're trying to find out how do you catheterize when you're at home? What is the best position? And that's going to form us nurses when we teach. So that's a really important question. Um, usual activities and self-care. Uh, are they able to dress themselves? Are they able to uh, feed themselves? Um, so really, what is their usual activity? And this is coming out of that European question that I was telling you about. I have no problems doing my usual care. You can see that that's the bulk of the individuals here. As far as self-care, do they have moderate problems? Or are they able to do um, the dress themselves? And that's one of the markers for self-care. And you can see the bulk of these individuals can dress themselves. Initiating, we want to know when did they start self-catheterization? And, you know, what, how long um, have they been using another method as far as catheterization? And you can see that group is less than three months that they would use another method to empty their bladder. We were also interested in who's recommending catheterization. And, and this is not surprising, although I think it's a little low, but 55% uh, was recommended by urologists to start their intermittent self-cath. Now, that may change as we go into other countries where you have different clinicians, providers recommending catheterizations. Um, so right now we're at 55%. And then who, who trained them? Well, this is exciting for me as a nurse and for you nurses on this um, You're a Nurse webinar. 76% were trained by a nurse, which was not surprising. The next group is urologists. But again, um, usually nurses are the ones. And that goes back to what we hope this registry will do to inform nurses, to teach them how to teach catheterization, what patients need to know, and what's lacking in that teaching. Looking at um, habits and recommendations, um, how many times you catheterize? Now, this is an interesting question because I don't know that I may tell someone four to six times a day it should be based on what type of volumes that you're getting with catheterization. We say that you should not let that cath um, bladder hold more than, say, four to 500 cc's. But we do know that as that individual continues to catheterize, they may find it a nuisance and not follow the instructions and the, the number of frequencies we want them to do. That can cause problems. If you don't keep that bladder fairly empty, you don't let it get to overflow over that 400, 500 cc's, or what is that, 15, 16 ounces, then you may get urinary tract infections or you may have that urine go up into what we call the upper tracts. And that can cause kidney problems. That can affect your kidney function and that's not good. So on average, <clears throat> people were mostly so far are catheterizing four to seven times a day. And you can see that span there. Um, how many, about the last 30 days. So that's what, the, by the way, that was what was recommended. And what was nice is look at that middle green column. They are doing it. You know, the majority are doing it what was recommended four to seven times a day. And then we want to know at nighttime, because as we age, we produce more urine at night. And a lot of times people can't go that eight, 10 hours they may be sleeping without catheterizing. So one of the questions on the registry is, thinking about the last 30 days, how many times each night do you usually need to catheterize? And you can see that, you know, the bulk, but not that, it's not that greater than one. People are getting up at night to catheterize. Um, and that was a little bit surprising with this age group. I thought that we'd have actually less people having to get up at night, but we're talking about at least one, and you can see two or more times. So people are, it is, catheterization is interrupting sleep. And we are asked about quality of life around that. Now, this is a busy slide, but we're looking at well-being. 
And like I said, the ICSQ, that's the intermittent catheterization questionnaire, does ask about the well-being. Does my catheter allow me to go away from the home? Um, and, you know, that type of thing. And the thing is, we're trying to find out how, you know, discreet and convenient is this catheter? And we're learning quite a bit of information from this. And what we're learning is that people are having a difficult time catheterizing when they're outside their home. Finding the right bathroom, especially men, like I said, they go into the stall, where do they throw the catheter away? They want to be discreet. They don't want anybody to know what they're doing in that stall. Um, are they able to carry it around? Um, psychological well-being. Um, my need to use a catheter sometimes makes me feel embarrassed. You know, are they embarrassed by it that I worry that my bladder's not emptying? That's a question that does come up as far as do they feel like their bladder is, is emptying whenever they put the catheter in? Some people don't feel all that urine's coming out. So we want to learn about that. And then also, um, what are they using? Um, you know, this is an interesting question. We want to know if they use different types. You know, as a nurse, <clears throat> many of us in urology, and I <clears throat> actually have a picture of our catheter room, and I'm sure, Vic, you're probably smiling, and everybody on this call who does this type of work knows that we have a lot of samples. And we don't know sometimes in, when we first start to teach someone catheterization, what is the best catheter for that person? Um, so we may give them a couple choices. We want to know if they're using maybe one or more types of catheters when they start to do it on a routine basis. And as you can see here, then most people, that's the red color on that first circle there, are just using one kind of catheter. Um, but then again, you know, some, the blue, the dark blue, are using two kinds of catheters. Actually, I was surprised that 23% of these individuals are using two types of catheters. I actually didn't think about that till I started to see this question being answered. Because I always thought that I give them a sample, they go and they just use one. Um, so during a typical month, how often, and you can see that breakdown, um, that they're using more than one catheter a few times per week, 38%. So this is interesting data. Why do they use it? And I think that this is important information. My primary catheter is not discreet enough in all situations. That makes sense, right? That maybe when I'm home, I don't use a, what we call a compact catheter, but when I go out, I like those really slim ones that I can put in my pocket and take out. You know, I hate to say this, but I have patients who catheterize in their car and they like to have a compact catheter that it's attached to a bag so they can catheterize, the urine goes in the bag and then they throw it away. So when are the, when are the instances when they may, maybe need to use a different, more, more than one type of catheter? And I think that's important for clinicians. We need to teach them about the different types of catheters that are available. So I really want to thank you. Um, I want to thank you, a nurse. I want to thank Vic, who's the host here, to present this to you because I hope that I have individuals on this call, uh, on this webinar, who really uh, may have patients or maybe you're, maybe you're, you're catheterizing that would like to come into this registry. It's really a great thing to be involved in. Like I said, you do get a slight stipend. Um, if you answer the surveys, you get, I think, a gift card that we email you. So, and it really is going to help you in the long run because we're going to learn from this. We're going to get insights into what we need to do as clinicians, but also what manufacturers of catheters need to do as far as what they may need to do to change maybe a catheter. Um, you know, there's a lot of data that we're getting. It was, you know, Vic only gave me 30 minutes, so I can't give you all the data, 
but I'll come back sometime if he allows me. But really, um, you know, what, what is best for you? What type of tip, uh, catheter, do you use a curved tip? Uh, do you use a catheter that's what we call hydrophilic? No, I use lubricant. You know, what are you doing as far as preparing your catheter? What's working for you? That's only gonna help improve technology as far as, as this evolves for how we make better and better catheters for you because you're living longer. We know that with catheterizing your bladder. So um, I really think that um, this is a fantastic registry. Um, I'm the principal investigator actually of the study here in the United States. We have principal investigators in the other countries. It is headed up again by Hollister and it really is going to inform this whole field of um, performing catheterization to empty your bladder. So I really thank you for allowing me to present this. Oh, we're glad to have you on board to present. Um, fantastic presentation. Uh, one thing I could definitely tell is from your enthusiasm is, is how important this is to you personally. So it really, that was impressive. Um, so I'm going to open up questions to anybody who's watching. Go ahead and use the comment box. We'll be glad to bring those up for Diane. This is a great opportunity. I'm going to kick it off, though, with a couple of questions or comments. Uh, the one thing I was surprised to, to hear about from the study was using more than one type of catheter. And my thought has always been, you know, whatever works best for you, right? But I didn't think about the fact, because I'm not using one myself personally, when you travel, a different catheter may be better. I think there was some pretty interesting information that you uh, got from the study. Yeah, and Vic, you know, one of the things we say is that catheterization, if you self-catheterize, it increases your independence, right? So why wouldn't they? Because if I'm independent at home, I use one type, but I've got to go out. You know, how do, you know I need something different. I want to travel, right? Um, I want to go on airplanes. You know, I'm going to pull out a long, the one of the longer catheters. No, I want to compact. So you're right. I didn't think about that either. And I have to tell you, Vic, I never really thought about that when I talked. Yeah. And that's, some, that's an important piece of data here, isn't it? that you need to say to someone, well, what do you do? Do you work, right? How often are you home? When do you go out? How often are you going out? How are you gonna manage your bladder when you go out, right? Yeah. As nurses, and because most of nurses are teaching this, but so urologists need to ask these questions because I do think that people are using more than one catheter and that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, panelists, any questions before I take it hog all the time with Diane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do have a comment. Diane, I really appreciate the, your choice of words in describing the anatomy and in describing this self-catheterization journey for people. A lot of us get into our jargon, and yet you really, really bring it down to the common folks level. So I really appreciate your choice of words. Secondly, I have a group of patients who may benefit from red registering with the continence care registry how do they go about doing that oh no oh no oh well hopefully diane will get back on because that's the same question i wanted to ask yeah it sounds like a great registry and i wanted to share among other groups and my patients and um and what she was talking about being aware of what the patient's journey truly is is so important i saw a patient uh, recently who was in her 80s, she has Alzheimer's, she was incontinent, and they were asking her to self-catheterize, and she's telling her caretakers that she's self-catheterizing. Also, the caretakers, the caretakers are making sure that she's actually doing it, but she, she doesn't like to do it because of, it's 
painful for her. So sure. I'm thinking, well, she's an older lady who may have difficulty seeing her urethra and doing it by feel may not be comfortable. And no one has shared with her that there are lighted mirrors that she can use or mirrors that she can strap to her thigh so that she can see where she's going. So just we just have to be aware of the patient's, the totality of the patient's circumstances in our recommendations, such as two different types of catheters, one for at home and having all the niceties and conveniences of a, a toilet set up for catheterization versus traveling. Oh gosh, absolutely right. So thinking about someone catheterizing um, anywhere else, restaurants, airports, you name it, right? Um, as, a, as a mom, I kind of think of, okay, when I used to take my kids and had to pack a diaper bag, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have so many things just to change a simple diaper. So different, but kind of same thought concept there with, can you imagine how, how are you carrying all these things as a male um, who may not carry a bag with, with them? Um, how are you carrying all these things just to go to the restaurant, right? Maybe not traveling, but, or go to a game or um, whatever that may be. The other question I had for Diane too, and, and maybe it's something you guys wondered as well, as we disperse this information to patients who might be interested, um, how easy is it, right? To to is it? Do they have to get on a computer? Do they can they do it from their phone? Do they have to download an app? Um, is this something that I saw that the medium age was, you know, folks in their fifties? is this something that you have to kind of be a little technologically, you know, savvy to, to partake or, or not. So just curious of, of those things as well. But yeah, my, my thoughts is that exactly. Lori, what, what do you think? Um, well, you, oh, yeah, right, go ahead. Well, you know, me and technology, right? You <laughs> 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 send me a piece of paper. No, no, I was actually fascinated I never even thought in the 25 years of neurology whether the catheter could freeze or not. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, that's something we don't think about as the patient leaves, you know, um, along with not having a garbage can in the bathroom. I have never thought about that until today. So it's kind of like changing diapers. You have to think about aquaphor, wipes, yeah. plastic yeah. bag, changing pad, and the actual diaper itself, uh -huh. right? And then also, where can he do the? Where can he change the diaper? Some somewhere discreet where it doesn't disturb other people, and where you can maintain some privacy for the baby. Well, Doctor Lynn, after stuff. five kids, I used to change them wherever <laughs> on the restaurant table. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's just like breastfeeding, right? Initially, you're like, "Oh, I'll cover." Yeah, now, just like, cover. "Yeah, whatever." <laughs> you don't want to watch. So <laughs> go somewhere else. I totally agree. And the in her study. In the registry, a lot of people have uh, don't have a lot of dexterity issues. And mm -hmm. I, I was thinking maybe that was selection bias, right? If they yeah. have to enter information sure. via computer, then those people who don't have the dexterity to enter that information may be selected against. So your number of people with dexterity issues participating may go down. Right. Yeah. And I, I think she mentioned that, of course, they're interested in the folks who are actually performing, you know, the catheterization should be the ones to answer, but you're right. Um, what if, you know, it's, it's a caretaker, a partner um, who helps you um, to catheterize, but not only that, also that could perhaps help you answer those questions as well, right? Mm-hmm.
yeah, I really would like to know how to uh, get a hold of somebody to uh, let the patients know where to register. And I looked up, I tried to look, I, I'm sure I can find it online where you can register. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so sorry. I just, uh, for some reason I came off. Yeah. I, I should, but there's a QR code and um, yeah, I, I should have probably put that on the slides. I really apologize about that. Um, but um, there, if, if you go to Hollister, you register, if you email me, um, I'm, I will send you the, um, the um, flyer. Um, so um, please, please do that. Um, my email address is Diane. Well, I'll do, I'll give you my Gmail, dknewman721 at Gmail. That's an easy one. So dknewman721 at gmail.com. And I'll send you the uh, flyer. Um, but one thing that, John, you brought up that's important. I've done a lot of research, especially in women around terminology, um, because we say things like void and micturation. You know, we use a lot of medical terms. And I have to tell you, um, some of our research with focus groups around the country is people use different terms. They all use P. That came up number one. And P is a verb. And to P is, you know, a verb. But P is also, you know, a noun. It's the urine. But they use things like P and peeing. So you're right. In medicine, I think, you know, we don't understand what, how our terminology affects patients. And I think that's very important. And um, so I think that, you know, around catheterization, it's something to think about. Um, and I think in research, a lot of times, we're not really explaining things well. Um, and uh, so when you teach, you really need to get down to the level of the individual. And I have to tell you, there's differences around the country. In the South, a lot of women would say, hey, um, I go see someone about a whore. You know, they'd use different colloquial type of terminology to go to the bathroom, mm -hmm. right? Um, so we really need to understand what people are doing uh, when we teach. And this is an important area. That said, I, I was faulted in a review by a patient because I, like you, want to make sure people really understand what I'm saying. So instead of saying P, mixturation, voiding, uh, I, I would say P. But instead of saying urethromeatus, I said pee hole to the patient in describing the urethromeatus. And that was offensive to the patient because I was not speaking professionally. I'm thinking, yeah, I, I can't I, win. I, I know, no. but that, that you do have that too, John. You're right. And sometimes it's like, but, you know, you try to, and I, you know what I, I have to tell you, like incontinence is another term. People don't know what incontinence means. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you've seen the commercials. What, what are they use on the commercials? Bladder leaks, right? Bladder leaks. I mean, that's what all the, so I kind of say, you know, when your bladder leaks or whatever, but you're right. You have to be, you know, cognizant of what, how you're speaking to individuals. But um, one of the things I did a lot of work in Philadelphia in, in the community and um, I, do, I do a talk called Bladder Fitness After 60. And I have a whole, we call it the Penn um, uh, Bladder Health Network in Philadelphia. And um, I get questions from, I do a talk on incontinence, prostate problems, and UTIs. And the question that comes up with women is, why don't they talk about our prostate? Women don't realize they don't have yeah. a, seriously. Sure. And, you know, and I never thought of that. Right. I mean, you know, OK. And you're right. That's a male thing. I always say now we're going to talk about men and their prostate. Women don't have one. But you're right, John. You know, you just don't know what your audience knows. So I just try to go on the error that nobody knows anything. Yep. I agree. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Diane had a question. Um, if somebody was a patient watching this, because I had mentioned earlier, a lot of times patients are watching these shows um, and they wanted to enroll. <clears throat> 
can they do that themselves or do they have to go through a healthcare provider? No, no. Oh, that's true. No, you can do it yourself. Um, it's actually, we, you know, a lot of our patients are coming from just finding out about it. Like I said, we're going to some of the patient advocacy groups. Uh, we're trying to get into Christopher Reeve um, Foundation in New Jersey. Um, as far as they really have a large population, United Spinal Cord Association. Um, so yes, patients can enroll in this. You don't have to do it through a healthcare provider. We are trying to get health nurses to also enroll individuals because of course we all have a large population mm-hmm. in urology that are catheterizing, but yes, you can do it yourself. And you don't have to be spinal cord injury to- No, enroll. oh no, anybody, anybody who's catheterizing. Um, you, they just have to be able to complete the surveys. And like yeah. I said, as we go into the other countries, we'll be translating them. Um, so, um, you know, that it, it'll be in their language type of thing. So yes, we are, it, um, you know, it's, you know, it doesn't matter who you are. We actually hope we get a nice mixture. You see, we have mostly men, but mm. we do have some women. We, but we do know the statistics show that there's more men catheterizing than women. But again, um, we hope to get, both, we want both genders too. Lori, do we have any questions from the audience? Uh, let's see. We answered, uh, Monica said, thank you for the presentation. Um, I have some questions. Oh, say I have the same questions as John. Um, at Hollister.com, I don't see it. She must be looking yeah. at They don't see the option for the registry at the continence care menu pull down. Yeah. Vic, you know, uh, I, uh, I, I, um, if I put up the QR code, Vic, do you think people can go to put it on their phones? Uh, they should be able to, yeah. Let me let me pull it up because I actually have it on this computer, uh, the flyer, and let I think me. While pull we're that doing up. that, I found the link to the Hollister oh. representative at Medifine, and I'll send you the link so that you can put it in the video description. Yeah. So oh, people John, can that's just wonderful. Click on it. I, yeah. I have it here. Can I can I show my screen? Sure. Or you now, can. Let me see. If... Go to present. Yeah, that's right. Present. Share screen. Uh-oh. So I found this on Medifine, M-E-D-I-F-I-N-D. And if you look up Continence Care Registry, there's uh, on that page, there's a connect me to this trial button. And you can just click on that. If that is just a, Diane, just send the email that to me. I will get it on the Euronurse website. And as I mentioned, uh, there's also the Europatient podcast. And I think this will be uh, a great subject to have in an upcoming episode to give them information on how to register. And it looks like Diane froze again. <laughs> Unfortunately, she's been having some computer issues. Yeah. I put this, I put the link in. Yeah, the I, thanks, John. I see that one just came yeah. up here. Well, hopefully we'll get Diane back on. It looks like she figured out that she froze. So, so the, 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 the system works really good that I used for the program, but it doesn't stop everybody's computers from malfunctioning. And Diane is on the road. I know using a laptop, she told me earlier, but, uh, oh, it's probably the Wi-Fi connectivity. Yep. That's the usual. <laughs> I get spoiled when I I'm in my home environment where I've got the highest speed internet available and it's, it's an ethernet connection, not Wi-Fi, So yeah. super stable makes a difference. Yeah. And that's why I always come in here to do it whenever possible because I'm yeah. hardwired with all sorts of redundancy. Yep. Yep. So, all righty. Uh, let's see. Any questions here uh, for Diane? So we'll see if yeah. Diane is done. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, though, to think about the expansion of the study um, into other countries. 
Um, I think one of the slides she had, um, they mentioned that one of the surveys was in over 120, 30 languages, maybe. Um, yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting. Um, as someone who is bilingual and, um, you know, my nursing education and everything was here in the U.S. and English, I always um, find it interesting when translating things to, say, Portuguese, because, of course, there's no uh, verbatim translating. So it's really interesting and exciting to think of the survey um, being in so many different languages. And it just gets my wheel spinning on to, um, you know, what that would look like um, in, in terms of the data they'll be able to obtain. Yeah. It, it, it's going to be interesting, too, just to see what we find from all this. You know, is there a cultural difference between how something is done in Germany versus in America versus Canada, you know, the kind of different uh, areas. I don't know. We, we had really bad weather here and Philly doesn't get it. And I keep going off, but let me, let me show this really quick. I'm so sorry. Um, That's okay. I, I think it's probably your Wi-Fi over in the, where, where you're at. Yeah. Well, no, I think I did share uh, the link. And the contact information of Mackenzie took right. it. Okay, let me show you this. So, in the comments, your browser has blocked your screen. Here, I'm gonna. I'll put it through. There it is. Oh, there. Okay. So yeah. So here, here's the thing. And if you scroll down, if you maybe enlarge that, um, can you get that just QR code? People can actually put their phone on there. What do you think, Vic? Um, I think that should work because it depends on your monitor as to how big it is, but that should work. And we'll get that flyer on our website too, so they can just download it from the website. Oh, that would be great, Vic. Yeah, so um, this is really what it is. And, um, you know, you can see um, who can participate. You're 18 years or older. You have to use, of course, Catherine's. And you have an email address because you want to complete the questionnaires. Um, if you qualify, you receive compensation. Uh, you get electronic or uh, physical gift cards. So if someone doesn't want the uh, electronic one, we do actually mail out the um, gift card for each questionnaire you complete. And we do follow you over five years. Um, but, um, you know, like I showed you, only six so far have dropped out. So people, you know, find it really helpful um, and informative. So I think that that's really important. I did test it with my phone. It does work. So I was. Oh, it does. Oh, great. Okay, great. <laughs> so. It's up there. I left it up there long enough, I think, for people to get it. So, and not a but problem. But if any nurses on the call, please download that flyer and keep it in your exam room. So when you're teaching someone, you know, yeah. just give it to them. And they can actually, with their phone, right there with their, when you're with them, scan it and hopefully, you know, go to the survey. Yeah. I think it's going to be uh, interesting to see these results down the line. I think it's going to, it may, I shouldn't say it may, it will impact the way we teach. Yeah, I mean, because you don't really know what people want. You know, there's there's very little um, long-term research on this, longitudinal research. There was one actually was published by someone years and years ago that I often use when I write. It was done in Canada. And what they found was that um, the amount of UTIs individuals were getting was really high, you know, as they catheterized over time. And all of us on our call know that urinary tract infections with someone who's inserting a catheter is a problem. And it's really a frustrating problem for people. Um, I have a lot of patients who like to keep an antibiotic just in case, right? They get an infection, yeah. which is not a good thing to do because what's happening in the world 
is we are getting resistant to more and more antibiotics. We're going to run out of antibiotics, everybody on this call. So we don't want someone taking it unnecessarily. But what they correlated with the urinary tract infections with the fact that people were not catheterizing that often. So if you keep that urine out of your bladder, the chances of you getting infection are less. And the more times you catheterize is important. But it should be paced on volume. And I tell patients all the time, because we do ask the question, do you catheterize, but are you also urinating? So are you also peeing? Some people have to maybe catheterize once a day because they pee, but they don't get it all out. Okay, basically, that's in a crude way saying their bladder is not emptying completely. So they need to catheterize. So we really base the number of times you have to catheterize on the volume. So what I have people do in initially and periodically is measure it. How many of you on this call, you know, patients come back and say, well, how much are you getting out? Well, I don't know about this much. Oh, it's about maybe a cup. Yeah. And I actually, you know, the nurse's hat, we call it. I give them one of the hats they put in the toilet or I tell them to a measuring cup, measure it once in a while. Make sure you don't get above that four to 500 milliliters. So that's again, about 15, 16 ounces. Because if you are, and it's dependent on your drink, if you're a big drinker, you know, if you live where John is right in the summer where you have probably drink a lot because it's so hot in Arizona, you may drink more. You may have to catheterize more during the summer. I don't know. It depends on your volume. That's one of the key things I think that we need to really impart to patients is that, hey, you need to catheterize based on your volume, what you're drinking, and how much comes out. Um, and you cannot get high volumes. I don't know. I'm sure on this call, people, have, you know, if you ever taught someone, patients will come back, well, I get 800 sometimes. And I actually have them keep sometimes a schedule for me you know, not every time, you don't have to measure it every time, but just in the beginning to give an idea of, you know, what kind of volumes, what, what are you getting? If you're urinating, maybe you don't have to catheterize as often. So to give them an idea of what that frequency should be. But that's one of the key points here. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that we need to educate patients on is that if you have a Foley catheter in an indwelling catheter, you are going to be infected. It's, it's impossible not to be. They say, I think studies have shown anybody within about 10 days will end up mm -hmm. being, being colonized. So the real sale point of intermittent catheterization is the low infection rate. You can have a normal life if you do it. Right, you do. And, and, you know, and you know that the big trend is to get rid of those fully, those indwelling catheters, because you're right, they lead to a lot of problems. And um, we're seeing less and less of those. Um, but, you know, you have to be able to catheterize. We're having an aging population. I think we're going to have more challenges. Yeah. As far as individuals, um, you know, being able to catheterize, um, I always tell patients, can you have someone else who's close to you and a family member or spouse also learn to do it just in case you need some help? Um, and that's another big challenge. And we do ask that question. Do you have assistance? How often do you have someone to help you maybe do it? Because with the aging population, we're going to see more bladder dysfunction, right, everybody? We're going to have people that really cannot urinate, cannot pee normally. They're going to have to catheterize. We're seeing more Parkinson's disease, MS. We saw what's her name on the Emmys, right, with her MS. You know, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of crazy. Every time I see that kind of thing, Vic, I think, I wonder if she's catheterizing. Isn't that sick? But seriously. <laughs> but no, but, ser but really, right? I mean, we're, we're seeing more, more nurse, people yeah. with yeah, neurologic problems, right? MS, Parkinson's, stroke. Um, we're seeing younger people. I just actually had a friend who had a baby who stroked out after delivery. She's only 40 some years of age. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, she had high blood pressure and it was really sad. She was very high risk. 
Um, but the point is, is that these conditions we're seeing more, people are living longer with these conditions. So we're gonna see more individuals that really do need to catheterize. Um, so I think that, um, you know, our population is only gonna grow and they're gonna live longer, which is so exciting because we now have a way for them to do it, you know, health, you know, healthy wise, as far as managing the body. And, and quality, quality life, not just yeah, more life. years, but good years. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to give a shout out to everybody, all the manufacturers of, of catheters and includes, of course, Hollister, Coloplast, Convitec, um, Curamedic, everybody, you know, um, that is um, the well spec that makes catheters because they really um, have really improved technology. We haven't seen much technology in indwelling catheters, but for it and mitten, we now have better coatings. We have more compact. We have catheters now for women that are shorter in length, right? That you could literally put it in your purse and then go catheterize real quickly. And then, you know, no one needs to know. And you, you're very, you know, really can be out there independent working. Um, so um, they've really, really advanced um, these types of products, I think more so than in another types of area of medicine. So that there's really, I always say, not one product is all the same. And we really, as nurses, need to really understand the different products and what's best for that patient with their lifestyle, right? Um, so they are independent and the fact that um, they can go around their daily lives. Yeah. Well, Diane, it's been fascinating having you on to talk about this. I think that not enough, you know, I, I'm never a big person to, to want to be involved in research, but this is exciting research. I think when it impacts people's lives like this does, it's really going to make a big difference. And I hope we see a, a big upshoot from people watching the show to join into this uh, research project. So we hit that 500 for you guys. I hope so. And Vic, listen, I want you to know, I'm excited you're doing this, but also how easy it was to get into here. Look at that. I got dropped off twice and I came back yeah. on. Yeah. So thanks so much. I mean, the technology is great. All righty. Well, I'm going to put a little plug in for next week. I'm going to be traveling. I'll be on the road, but I'll be presenting next week on this. The decision to replace healthcare workers with AI was not without controversy. Advocates argued that AI-driven healthcare ensured precision, eliminated human errors, and reduced costs. However, dissenters voiced concerns about the loss of the compassionate touch that defined human healthcare. Patients, once comforted by the empathy of their caregivers, now found themselves interacting with emotionless machines. Could this be a reality? Watch YourOwnNurse.com this Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Time to find out. And for those of you that want to, are patients and want to learn more as a patient, be sure to join the EuroPatient podcast, which is coming out at 1030 today. We're going to be looking at, oh no, it left my, I think, oh, there we go. Is your diet making your bladder crazy? Hmm. Lots of interesting things. Hey folks, uh, I'd like to once again say thanks to my uh, great group of panelists, Diane, again, always a pleasure to have you on the show. And I, not only will I invite you in the future, I guarantee I'll invite you in the future because it's always yeah. great to have you on. Uh, thanks a lot. With that, I would like to say thanks to all my other uh, experts who make this show happen every week. We're, uh, we're really pleased with how well things are going and hope to see everybody next week on EuroNurse.com. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.